All right, if you would, open your Bibles to Exodus. We're going to the very end of Exodus, the last two verses, Exodus uh, 5, um, verses, uh, beginning verse 22. And then we're going to run through Exodus uh, 6, verse 13, as uh, we begin a new sermon series this week titled Promises of God. And today we're going to look at what I consider to be the overall, overarching promise of God in the Bible. People who really don't deserve God's love, nonetheless hear this promise. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is God's promise, a a promise to call a people to be his own people, to care for, to guide, to prosper, to protect, to eternally delight in. This is his promise. Perhaps a good question or two to think through is, is, are you part of this promise? Do you believe this promise? And do you live your life in light of this promise? Now, our passage that we're just about ready to read comes on the heels of a very large disappointment for Moses. Moses had obediently went back to Egypt and commanded Pharaoh to let God's people go. But not only did did Pharaoh deny Moses' request, he laid extra burdens upon the people of Israel. Things did not go as Moses believed they would. And Moses is dumbfounded and he cries out to God in our passage. Exodus 5, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why, have you, why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will make you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit in harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron 
and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, you must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we see in this account so many thousands of years ago who you are and and what you have done. You have called for yourself a people, a people to be known uh, by your name, uh, people to be cared for and protected. Help us to understand more fully what this means for our lives here this morning as we ponder um, with the spirit that you give us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, right at the beginning of the financial crisis in 2008, I had a Christian stand before me, dumbfounded, um, as to, to why her life was now in crisis mode. The only thing that, that she was certain of was that she had done nothing to deserve what was going on. Now, I didn't really have privy to what was going on in her mind, and, and in her head she was perhaps thinking something along these lines. You know, I've been a good person. I've led Bible studies. I've given money to good causes. My marriage is committed to God. I've done what is expected, but God has done the unexpected. It's not just financial crises that caused Christians to doubt about the care and protection of God. How many of you have undergone serious uh, illnesses, uh, cancer even, or perhaps had a loved one die at a, at a young age, or perhaps had kids who were raised in the church uh, come to abandon the faith? In times like these, in crises like these, the temptation is to point the finger back to God and say, I've done my part, now what about you? Do you notice that's what Moses is doing here in this passage? Moses had done everything that God had asked him. He was obedient. Return to Egypt. Check. Tell God's people that God was going to deliver them. Check. Check. Tell Pharaoh, demand from him to let God's people go. Check. But now, not only has Pharaoh said, take a hike, old man, but he has now laid an even greater burden upon the, the people of Israel. They still had the same quota of bricks to make every day, but now they were told, you've got to go get your own straw and make these bricks. In verse 22 of chapter 5, that begins our passage, Moses is undone. He cries out to God. He says, why, why, how come? We too, like Moses, can find ourselves questioning God's actions or lack thereof. We can find ourselves perplexed and and confused about our circumstances. We we believe that we're seeking to honor God with our lives, that we we have as our highest goal uh, a life lived for God's glory and his kingdom. And yet we find ourselves in in times of crisis and and we're, we're left scratching our heads. I don't know if you noticed this in our passage, but God doesn't answer Moses' questions with answers. Moses asks, why, why, how come? And God does not reply, because, because, here's why. God doesn't respond to Moses' questions with answers. Instead, he gives him something better, promises. And the big overarching promise that he gives his people in the midst of this passage is he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. 
Fascinating. Creator of the universe saying this to human beings. It should astound us. That's what he says. That's, he promises this to Moses and the people. And, and you know, Moses, Moses needed to see that and hear that, didn't he? How about you? You need to hear that today, don't you? Because God has promised to be our God, we must be his people who trust in him. We're going to look at that as we look at three things. The power, the plan, and the promise. The power, the plan, and the promise. First, the power of God. When the circumstances of our lives spin out of control, we're left wondering, is anyone really in control? God, are you in control? Uh, Is this not within your power to, to do something here? You ever find yourself thinking that way? Moses, in weakness, cries out to God, and God reminds him of his power. Moses was rejected by by Pharaoh. He was kicked out. On top of that, the very people he came to rescue, they're saying, we don't think we want you around here anymore, Moses. And he cries out to God, wanting to know what happens. And in verse 22 and 23, Moses calls into question God's character. Why have you allowed this evil to take place? Why did did you ever involve me? Uh, How come you haven't done anything? Why? Why? How come? Tony Merida, who wrote a commentary on this, and I'm indebted to for a number of points this morning. Here's what he writes. He says, <laughs> check this out. He did not understand why obedience made things worse. You've experienced this as a Christian, haven't you? Perhaps you've committed not to gossip about other kids in school. And in doing so, you find that some of your so-called friends are now gossiping about you and talking ill about you behind your back. You've obeyed God, and yet your obedience seems to have made things worse. Moses was rightly disappointed, right? But even then, he should have expected that things were, were going to be hard. Earlier, I don't know if you know, but God had told Moses, this is not going to be easy. He's not going to want to let the people go. Nevertheless, he's discouraged in this terrible circumstances. Moses reminds us of ourselves. He's an imperfect sinner in need of God's mercy and grace. He's he's in a crisis of belief. On a positive note, he is at least addressing God, right? He's, He's talking to God. He cries out to him. He was honest before God in his groanings. He wasn't asking sinfully or rebelliously, which tells us something that it is good for us to cry out to God, to talk to him, but not in a rebellious or sinful way, but come before him and be reminded of his promises towards us. So Moses sits before God in weakness, and God responds by reminding Moses of his power. God told Moses, he says, I am in control. And it's true, God is in control of all things. Uh, We call this sovereignty. God is a sovereign God, like a king is sovereign over his kingdom. God is sovereign over all. And God has the power and the authority to do anything that is according to his will. In verse 1 of chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses and he says, Now, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. I told you before I would deliver my people out of Egypt. I never said it would be easy, but now I'm going to do it. And it will take special power to cause Pharaoh 
to release the people. We see in the second half of verse 1, God says, For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out. Now, this isn't the first time Moses has heard about a strong hand. Earlier in chapter 3, God told Moses, it's not going to be easy. Pharaoh will not want to let the people go. But my mighty hand, my strong hand, will cause him to let the people go. I will do miracles that will uh, persuade him and cause him to let God's people go. Now, in our passage, God reminds Moses of this strong hand. But as we read the verse, it sounds as if it's really Pharaoh's strong hand, right? That is, is sending the people away. So what is it? Is it God's strong hand or is it, is it Pharaoh's strong hand? Well, it's God's strong hand upon Pharaoh that causes Pharaoh's strong hand to push the people out of Egypt. In other words, God is so in control of the circumstances that he is able to control the evil and prideful ruler of Egypt. The the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who demands that all of his subjects worship him as God, is being controlled by the one true God who has power and authority to do so. And he doesn't even know it's happening. See, God is able to take the actions of people who don't even believe in God and use them for his good purposes. Christians, you believe that. Do you believe that God is in control, even when things seem out of control, and that he has at his disposal the power and the authority to do anything that is in accord with his will? He does. That's the power. Now for the plan of God. When you read the Bible, who are you mainly reading about? Are you reading about yourself, or are you reading about God? The Bible is ultimately not a story about you. It is a story about God. It is God's big story. Now, yes, it's wise to locate yourself in the pages of Scripture, like we're doing here this morning. We're we're finding ourselves in the lives of Moses, in the lives of the Israelites, and making application to our lives. But ultimately, the Bible is a story about God. And if you find yourselves in the pages of Scripture, then you are really finding your story in God's story. Now, you and I run into problems when we make our lives the big story and we mistakenly believe that God is going to find his story in our story. Do you follow me on that? Countless Christians around the world tell God their life plans. I know because I've done this. It sounds something like this. I'm going to light the world on fire. I'm going to graduate with a good degree. I'm going to start this business or I'm going to have this amazing career. And and surely, God, you're going to make this all happen, right? And then I'm going to get married to that really cool, amazing person that, that, well, God, you're going to find for me. And and my kids, my family's going to be wonderful. You know, the kids are going to be good looking and smart and they're going to be healthy, right? Certainly, you would never let me have a child who's got some sort of ailment or issue, issue to deal with. As a family, we'll be thankful every day. And then we will certainly come to church on Sundays. And God, you're there to make this all happen, right? 
I know I'm kind of saying that tongue-in-cheek, mockingly, but I know my own heart that that's a tendency for me to come up with my own big plan. This is my story, and God, you're going to come and make it happen. It's your duty to do it. Why? Because I've been good. I've led Bible studies. I've done this, and I've done that. My friends, this is poor theology on our part. But not only that, it's dangerous. You see, even when God has clearly revealed his plans for your life, as he has with Moses, we can become despondent and begin to teeter on apostasy when things don't go according to plan. God speaks to Moses and reminds him that he, not Moses, is the one with the plan, a glorious plan. God takes uh, a, God's plan is, is, is to take for himself a people to call his own. And it's not going to be easy. It's already taken over 400 years for these people in Egypt. It's going to be hard. There will be obstacles. But God has pledged this. So God speaks to Moses and he tells him, Moses, I have a plan. I've always had a plan. And I'm working out that plan. And God tells him why Moses must trust in God's plan. Because God's plan is based on a covenant. And it's full of covenant promises for the people of God. In verses 2 through 5, God tells Moses that he appeared to Abraham. And then to Isaac. And then to Jacob. And he established his covenant with them. Now, this might not sound like much to you. But it sure should have meant an awful lot to Moses, who understood what a covenant is. Remember what a covenant is. A covenant isn't a contract. Um, we enter into contracts, like with your cell phone company or whoever. Uh, contracts are written to, up to do what? <laughs> I've got uh, a friend of mine's a lawyer here. Uh, their, their contracts are written uh, to, to cover someone's rear end when things don't go right. How are we going to split things up when you don't live up to my expectations of you? That's why we enter into contracts. A covenant is something entirely different. People, parties enter into covenants for the mutual blessing of each party. Marriage is a, is a covenant in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad. It is not a contract, though many people treat it as such. It is a covenant. And when you stand before someone and you make those covenant vows, you are saying, irrespective of whether you live up to my expectations, irrespective of whether or not you care for me in the way in which I, I believe you should, I am going to bless you. I'm not going to keep a list of all the rights and wrongs that you've done. Once you hit a certain level of, of success, then I respond with goods and services for you. This is a, a covenant. And in a covenant, um, though you may fail, I promise to continue to bless amazing, isn't it? See, you enter a contract to cover your own skin. You enter into a covenant to, to cover someone else's. And God is, 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 in this passage, God has entered into a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. I will be your God. You will be my people. Even if you fail me, I will not fail you. What a promise. What a, what a blessing. What a, 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 a statement uh, meant to encourage God's people. This is how he interacts with us, with mercy and grace. He doesn't keep a long list of records. He's promised to bless his people. And so in verses 2 to 5, God tells Moses that he hasn't forgotten his covenant plan. I gave you my word. 
he tells Abraham, actually he gave him, did you notice? His name. In verse 2, God tells Moses his covenant name. God has a name, a personal name, a name by which his people are to know him, and his name is Yahweh. (laughs) That's right. Whoa, that's right. I know that's not what we read. I know that's not what we read in verse 2. We read what? Uh, You know, we read, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. But in the original Hebrew, it says, Ani Yahweh. Ani, I am Yahweh. Yahweh is God's name. Now, our Bibles now translate Yahweh, when you see it in the Hebrew, they translate it with the the Lord, where L-O-R-D is all caps. Why would we do that? Well, it goes back at least 200 years before Jesus, when Jewish people were concerned that they didn't, they want to make sure they weren't going to take the name of the Lord in vain. And so whenever they read their Hebrew text, whenever they came across Yahweh, uh, they would say instead Adonai, which means Lord, and then the Greek would be Kurios. And when they translated the the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek, they, they, they used the word kurios, which is Lord. And that, that's when we continue to do that to this day. But here's what I do. When, and I had a hard time this morning reading the passage because when I read the Old Testament and I see L-O-R-D in caps, the Lord, I, I, in my mind I say Yahweh. Because that's what's there. It's his name. God's given us his, his name. Yahweh. God told um, Moses in chapter 3, isn't the first time Moses heard it, Moses in chapter 3 is like, okay, God, I'm going back to Israel. All right, I'm going to talk to all these people. And who am I going to tell them sent me? Come on now. I just, you know, some God. And he's like, and so, uh, you know, what's your name? And so here's what God said. He says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Tell them I am sent you. The God who is has a name, and it's Yahweh. This is my name, and you are to remember it forever. Now, why is this significant? Maybe this illustration will help. Say you come in contact with the police officer, and the proper response is to treat the, per, the officer with respect. You know, Good afternoon, Officer Williams. Now, the protocols change when the officer says, call me Mike. Now, in that instant, Officer Williams still has, uh, is an officer worthy of respect and honor, but he has also begun a relationship with you. In the past, you used to see him around town as Officer Williams, uh, but going forward, you will know each other on a personal basis. In fact, when he sees you, he will be caring for you and watching out for you and covering your back, not just as Officer Williams, but as Mike. In a similar but more significant way, this is what God has done. He remains God Almighty, creator of the universe, uh, worthy of honor and praise, but he has given his people his name. To the world I am God Almighty, but to you I am that and I am Yahweh. 
To you I have pledged my covenant love. My plan is to forever have you as my people, and I will be your God. Now in verse 5, we see, what does God say? Moses is like complaining because it doesn't seem as if God like even cares for these people. And uh, in verse 5, God says, no, I know what the circumstances here are. I've seen it. In verse 5, he says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, who the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. He remembers his vow and his pledge to be Yahweh uh, to the people of Israel. That he has pledged, irrespective of how they perform, that he will be their God and he will deliver them. God sees what's going on in the world. He, He sees the groanings of his people. And when he does, he remembers his covenant of love that he has pledged towards them. The psalmist says, God remembers his covenant forever. And when we trace this covenant promise throughout scriptures, ultimately, God kept his covenant in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are part of an eternal covenant that is sealed with his blood. And because of this, we can find peaceful rest during times of difficult circumstances in our lives. We have a Savior who died in our place and rose again and who's seated in heaven, who intercedes on our behalf. We know his name and he knows ours. That's the power and the plan. Now for the promise. God's plan isn't only that he remembers his covenants and hears our groanings. As we see in in God's plan in verses 6 through 8 is that he will save his people. This is his promise. Verse 6 begins with, say therefore to the people of Israel. So God God is saying, you're going to go and say these words to the people. You follow that? Now in our bulletins, I had it printed special, uh, not on special paper, but the the text is lined out there. So I want you to see all that God is saying so you you can see. How How does God begin and end his statement to his people? With the words, I am Yahweh. And he ends it with, I am Yahweh. And in between, what do we see? We see seven times he says, I will. And these seven I will statements form four promises that have New Testament importance to us as well. Let's look at these four truths. We're going to go through them kind of quickly. But here we go. The first truth that we should note is liberation. Verse 6. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. This is God's picture of salvation. God is going to deliver his people out of slavery. And, um, and we know God liberated his people through the mediator, Moses. Now, this would be accomplished by God's grace through faith because it's certainly not something that they had earned. And if you read in Exodus 15, you understand why God is doing this. Uh, so they can have happy days uh, hanging around? No. Uh, God did this for the purpose of his liberation was that they might worship God Almighty. And of course, we see this run through the New Testament. Exodus is a, is, is, is a picture of a greater liberation that is to come, that has come to us through the mediator, Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 1.4, he says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. 
God set us free from our spiritual slavery and our inability to keep the law through the mediator, Jesus. And this occurs obviously only by grace, through faith. And the purpose of our release is worship as well. Gratitude and delight in the one who is mediated for us. We were made for worship, and Christ has now liberated us so that we are now free to worship. The next gospel truth that we see here we should recognize is redemption. Look at the latter part of verse 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Tim Keller says there's no more basic word in the Bible than redemption. And the first time that it's used in the Bible with reference to God's action is here in our passage. Now, the Hebrew verb ga'al means to redeem. The, the participle has, kind of, it's, it has a noun force. It's go'el. And so um, what we see here is that God is the go'el. God is the redeemer. Now, the word has a sense of purchasing something back, but it's far more... Um, it's far more nuanced and informative than then than that. The word, the word goel was in the Old Testament was the, the kinsman redeemer or or family champion. Say, for instance, a kinsman fell into debt. Well, the 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 goel, the one who is in better financial circumstances, would come and and buy the property so that the family would would keep it in the family's name and in its inheritance. If a man died without a son to carry on his name and the inheritance, uh, the kinsman's redeemer's job, the nearest male relative, was to, uh, was to take the deceased man's widow and seek to have an heir raised uh, for him. What we see, though, is that God is the ultimate goel. He's the ultimate family protector. He says he's going to gaal, redeem his people. In Exodus, he was coming to the aid of his people. Do you see that? It's not like I was just up in heaven going, you know, I think it might be good to do this. No, he's like, these are my people. I'm coming for them. I'm their champion. I'm going to rescue and redeem and restore and deliver them. They're on my mind. They're on my heart. Tony Merida continues to say he was coming to defend, intervene, avenge, and rescue them. He was coming to redeem them with justice. He was also coming to ensure that the ultimate family heir would be preserved. What does he mean? Well, ultimately, this people, if they were not preserved, there would be no Messiah. The ultimate Goel, the Redeemer, our Lord. In Galatians, Paul put redemption in this family dimension of adoption together and he says but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and because we are sons God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts crying out Abba father so check this out so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through God In your discouragement, remember that you have a Redeemer. Jesus Christ is your great champion for you. He has paid the price to relieve you from your greatest debt and from your most desperate situation. 
He's paid it all with the blood of his life that you might have life in him. And now we sit at his table and we will forever be in his presence one day. Soon we will know the full riches of this redemption that God has for us. The third gospel truth for us to consider is adoption. We spoke about it a little bit last week. We see it in verse 7 where God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This verse shows us that salvation is familial. It's not a distant God who does all this. It's Yahweh. The God who takes people from the earth to be his own. You know, this, this melody is repeated throughout scripture. This picture of God taking a people to be his people so that they, he can be their God. Earlier, Adriana read from Revelation 21. God's promise of this finds its fulfillment in that age to come. God physically brings heaven down to earth and dwells with his redeemed family. I encourage you to meditate upon that passage perhaps a little bit more. But what we do see there is, we, is, is John is taken up into heaven and he heard a loud uh, voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. It might not be on your mind, but this is on God's mind to have a people to call his own who've experienced his grace, his mercy, who come to understand his glory and power and dominion and love him and worship him and delight in him on God's mind. He's promised this. this. There's an adoption that has come to us. These promises are true to us in Christ Jesus. No matter how many difficult circumstances you face, no matter how silent God may appear to you in the moment, he has promised his unfailing covenant love towards you. And this day that he talks about is coming, which takes us to the last gospel truth, which is the concept of inheritance. We see this in verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. God had promised Abraham and then Isaac uh, and, and then Jacob that he would give them the land. Uh, and these are the descendants now living in Egypt. And they had nothing at this time. They were slaves. As slaves in Egypt at this time, if God could make it happen, I think they probably would have settled for casual Fridays. We don't need the promised land. Just, we could just have a casual Friday every week. That'd be good enough for us, God. So too, for us, in the midst of life's demoralizing circumstances, we settle for less than what God promises Often we settle not for what God would work in our lives, but rather what, well, what we can work in our lives. Surely God's not watching over me. I've got to take things into my own hand. And guess what? When we do that, we usually end up with what? Casual Fridays. Instead of the true promises of God and the gifts he's promised us. Does that make sense? Do you see that in your own life? I see it in my life. God is going to give them inheritance. He is going to give them the promised land. All by his grace. They did not earn it. So to us today, this inheritance of the promised land is but a type or a shadow 
of what God has in store for his people. We just talked about that. Revelation 21, that is what's coming. But elsewhere, Peter, the apostle, says that because of Jesus' resurrection, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Do you believe that? Do you live in light of that? One person who uh, tells a story that helps us to live in light of that is John Newton, the former slave trader who, who came alive to Christ and wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. I'm sure you all know that. He tells this story so that um, Christians can endure during the trials of life. And so Newton uh, said that the Christian should not complain or murmur or despair because of all that is coming, the, the good stuff we're just talking about. Because of all that, we should not complain or murmur uh, uh, or despair. And he says, imagine a man who inherited a really large sum of money, millions of dollars, and these are his words, and he had to go to New York City to get it. <laughs> all right, I, I think it was in England at the time, all right? He's not out in Watermill, New York, all right? Uh, and then he says, as he journeyed there, his carriage broke down when he was only one mile away. He only had to walk one mile Newton then asked, can you imagine the man saying, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, and kicking and complaining when he only had to walk a mile to receive millions. Newton's illustration, and more so God's words here this morning in this passage, call us to rest in God's promises, to know and to treasure the inheritance he has for us. To not complain or murmur or despair when forced to endure trials. And not because, well, no one likes a complainer. No, but because it makes no sense to complain in light of what is just one mile away. Those are those four promises, but we're going to conclude with just one last promise in our passage and it isn't spoken literally. It's, it's demonstrated in verses 9 through 13. I think you'll enjoy this, though. The promise is this. Even though we are weak and unwilling, God promises to make all of this happen. Look at how the people responded when Moses spoke those words of God's promise to them. Perhaps not, not better words in all of Scripture for God to say to his people. And how do they respond? Verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. That means Moses spoke all of those words to Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. At first we say, what, are you kidding me? You don't listen to that? but then I think we can sympathize with them, right? Why didn't they listen? Why? They're incapacitated. They couldn't believe. They couldn't find strength because all of their strength was gone. Merida writes, sometimes people are so wounded it is hard for them to put everything together. It is hard for them to hear. Sometimes people are so mentally and emotionally crushed, they cannot get it. Maybe you've been there before. Now, 
What's our typical response when we see someone who's suffering from a broken spirit and, and uh, suffering in circumstances? Our tendency, well, maybe not you, but maybe you've got one of those softer hearts, but uh, I'll speak for myself. My tendency is to push them. Come on, here's the answer. Do this. You shouldn't be so upset. Go do this. Move out. Get on with life, right? Pushing them. And that, uh, no one's nodding their head. It's just me. All right, that's fine. Get moving. You know what? Yahweh's not like that. What does Yahweh do? He goes to work for them. God does for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. When his people are weak, and we are all weak, all the time, when his people are weak, God acts on our behalf. The salvation we have in Christ is, is God's response to our brokenness and our inability. It's foolish pridefulness if we were to think that we can stand on our own and, 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 and achieve uh, the goals and dreams that we think that we should achieve. We are dependent, utterly dependent, upon the mercy and the grace and the power and the love of God in our lives. Thankfully, God says, I remember my covenant. Though you've failed, I will not fail you. I will do it. What you are unwilling, incapable of doing, I will do it. And you remember the Israelites? They were bickering, complaining, and moaning for 40 years. And yet, God brought them in. How much more so have we been brought in to the sending of His Son, Jesus, who died in our place, that we might have life, that we might be delivered from slavery into his kingdom of righteousness. But we must remember, it is his doing. When we are weak, no, when we are even unwilling, God has done this for his people. That's a beautiful picture of what we see here. And, and of course what we see is, uh, in verses 10 and uh, 13, God tells Moses to go again to Pharaoh and demand his people's release. And Moses responds how? With confusion, right? And we can kind of understand. I mean, why would Pharaoh listen to him if the Israelites won't even, right? God says, no, you are going to go. As weak as you are, I'm going to send Aaron with you. As weak as the two of you are, my power is going to be manifest through you to redeem and save my people. Once again, I like what Tony Merida writes here. He says, What I love about the Exodus is that it is so visual. We are watching theology unfold. God is going to do all of this. All he asks his people to do is to know that he is Yahweh. Salvation is all of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Um, We thank you that you give us eyes to see uh, the truth here in this scripture. We we are often so weak and and ill-prepared to understand um, who you are, how you operate. As your people, we we confess our need for you, ongoing. Uh, We pray that we would be a people who 
know that even in the dire circumstances of our lives, when crises uh, come upon us, that you understand and you see. Um, And more than that, you act on our behalf. Help us to trust in your promises today and tomorrow and until that day when Christ returns, we pray. Amen.